0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm the president from PowerU. Hi, Hi, it's Robin Devon at The
1: Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 6th. Today, a show about life and death, finding joy in Black pregnancy, and interacting with the afterlife with the help of AI.
2: So this is Helena Andrews-Dyer, and I am 36 weeks pregnant. Helena is a reporter for the
1: Style Section. She's also nine months into a complicated pregnancy. My placenta previa has not resolved. Placenta previa is this rare condition
2: when the placenta is too close to the cervix. And the risk with placenta previa is hemorrhaging. And hemorrhaging is a huge risk, not just to mom losing a lot of blood, but there's a possibility for baby to lose blood and to lose oxygen, and it can happen very, very quickly. And then you're in a really dangerous emergent situation. So the only fix for that is a C-section.
1: And for Helena, that's a scary prospect, not just because C-sections are scary, but because of everything that Helena has heard about the particular risks for Black women who give birth. In the last few years, there's been this huge increase in awareness about the maternal health disparities for Black women with lots of very alarming statistics. When compared with white women in America, black women are more likely to experience serious conditions earlier in their pregnancy. They're more likely to need a non-elective C-section. They have super high maternal mortality rates. Black women are almost three to four times more likely to to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. That's Regina David-Moss. She's a maternal health doctor and also executive director at the American Public Health Association. She says that the high rate of mortality among Black mothers can be traced back to several factors, including stress. There is certainly something to be said around toxic stress, chronic stress, and how our experiences of Black women and women of color have an impact on birth outcomes.
2: There's this concept called weathering, the theory being that the toll of racism can physically deteriorate your body.
1: The idea of weathering became more well-known in 2017, when ProPublica published an exhaustive investigation into Black maternal mortality rates. Since then, Helena has been thinking about that research. This won't be the first time that she's giving birth. She has a young daughter. But this time around, Helena's been talking to other Black women to try to answer a question. How do you stay informed about the stark medical realities of Black pregnancy without being consumed by anxiety and fear? Are you good?
3: Yeah, I just have a little uh, Braxton Hicks. Do you really? Yeah, right down here. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And then I get the the lightning crotch a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot. It feels like uh, someone just kicked me in my private.
1: Yeah, that is Ashley Darby.
3: I am a cast member on the Rojas Lives of Potomac. I'm currently 37 weeks pregnant. Very 37 weeks pregnant. I was sitting in the waiting room and I was reading an article in Essence about how the ramifications from slavery are actually in our DNA. And we pass it down through the generations. And one of the components was discussing women's health and how women's health has been affected by slavery. So as I'm sitting there, I, I had been in the dark about this. And I'm really just waiting in the doctor's office to have this experience myself. And then when I read that article, I, it just kind of, it shocked me. Well, I remember when that story came out. Yeah.
1: And in some ways, on maybe a more immediate level, I wasn't so surprised that in many ways that that uh, health outcomes are, are worse for Black women because that's true of a lot of the medical system. But it was really shocking and scary to see just how dramatic the disparity was. And it really gave you the impression that to be a Black woman giving birth in America
2: is dangerous. Exactly. Exactly. And it can leave you with this insidious sort of fear right and I think one of the things that yes as a black woman you you know move your you move yourself your body through the world you know that things are more difficult for us right and it's across socioeconomic barriers it does not matter if you have ivy league degrees which I do you know it does not matter if you've done all the research which I have you can still have a negative outcome
3: It's very clear when I walked into the delivery room around my pain management, medications.
1: And after about 13 hours of labor, I had a fever of 101. My son began to go into fetal distress. I was rushed into surgery for emergency C-section. And then he spent several days in intensive care unit.
2: Maternal health in general in the United States is not great, right? Not great for a first world country. So... Seven to 900 women a year die from pregnancy-related complications. And that doesn't mean you die necessarily in the hospital. You could die postpartum, right, which is up to a year after you've left the hospital, right? That's a big number. Now, it is in terms of the amount of people who have babies— It's not huge, right? We are in the United States. You will most likely survive this, like. But But it's a big number. In this day and age, the idea of people dying in childbirth or soon after—exactly—it's crazy. It is crazy, and it's a big number, and it's completely unacceptable, right? And the number could be bigger because there is no national database. States are kind of doing this on their own when it comes to tracking maternal morbidity, especially when it happens postpartum, and within that number. It's mostly black and brown women. You know, women are dying. Black women are dying more. Most women who go into a hospital to have a baby are going to come out safe and healthy, right? The problem being, for those women who don't, they disproportionately look like me.
1: And I think that, you know, the data has been scaring people, but also— I feel like the anecdotes that people hear are also mm-hmm. really scary. That, that I remember the account from Serena Williams shortly after she gave birth where she was in somewhat of a medical crisis, but that doctors weren't paying attention to her or they weren't believing that she was in pain. And she really had to be an advocate for herself and demand further care or else she could
2: have died. Yes. And that was really shocking. She knew her body. She knew she had a previous condition where she had blood clots. So as she was telling them, no, this is what I need. I need a CT scan and I need X, Y, and Z. She knew exactly what she needed. And they were telling her, oh, no, like, we don't think so. Or just delaying it. She's like, I need this stat. And when she got it, they were blood clots. Those and types then of and Even stories, if you're a world-class athlete and exactly. it's well it's Serena Williams, will still exactly you'll still be in trouble when it comes to childbirth. Exactly. And there's... So many reasons for that. And again, it's why this story centers more on women's pushing past that. But one of the many reasons is that almost, I think there was a study that came out that said every medical professional holds at least one biased opinion about people of color, right? Mm -hmm. Which could be that we experience pain differently. That's rooted in slavery. Mm -hmm. So what does that say that says maybe they rush through your C-section? Hmm. or when you tell someone you're in pain, they ignore it. And pain is your body's way of telling you something's wrong. (laughs) You know, we should fix something. And if you're telling your doctor you're in pain and your doctor is thinking, oh, no, you're not. You know, I talked to one woman who came out of her C-section, and the nurse asked her, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, what would it be? And she was like, oh, it's like an 8. And the nurse was like, really? Hmm. And she said she thought to herself, like, would you have questioned me? If I was a white woman, Mm -hmm. you know, would I have gotten my meds? And C-sections, they're painful, you know, and afterwards you are supposed to be given pain meds in order to function. If you want to breastfeed your baby and be able to hold your baby up, you need to have the proper pain medication. And if your nurse or your clinician is saying like, oh, well, I don't think you are in that much pain. Mm -hmm. They've just started you on a much more difficult path. The majority of medical professions, even black medical professionals, right? So that's, again, speaks to the fact that it's not just race, it's racism, it's the system, right? Even black medical professionals sometimes think these same things. So it's about changing the entire system basically, which is a bit a tall order. Yeah. Well, tell me about some of the people that you talked to
1: about how to not only fix the system, but also get past this pervasive sense of fear.
2: Well, in terms of fixing the system, I talked to lawmakers. I talked to Senator Kamala Harris, who is, you know, also running for president of the United States. And she has a bill that she has reintroduced as, again, this issue is becoming, I don't want to say trendy, but more mainstream, reintroduced. And one of the key components of the bill is training for medical students, again, to unlearn this bias that they have, right? And also to get more medical professionals that look like— the people that they serve. That's hugely important, right? And that helps, quote unquote, change the system from the inside. I talked to Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, who has an MPH, and she created the Black Maternal Health Summit on the Hill, thinking it was just going to be her and one other congresswoman doing this work and serving as sort of like a clearinghouse for all this data, right? Because again, so much data is coming at us. It's like, how do you, one, Access it and then turn it into viable legislation that's going to help people. And so I think they formed maybe in April and they've already had like a huge summit on the Hill where they brought in all these medical professionals just to talk about, Okay, we know this is a problem. What do we do about it? And I think that's what has really enlivened a lot of the people who work in this space, birth workers, because they've been ringing this bell for years. This has been a problem for decades. Mm-hmm. And I think that now people are talking about it. The Senator Cory Booker is talking about it. So it's, it's— But so far, has has anything changed tangibly? Yes. There was just a bill that passed that I believe is going to provide funding to states to, one, track this data appropriately, right? So I believe there's just a bill that passed that's going to provide funding so we can track the data properly on a federal level, right? So we know what's happening across the whole country because a lot of states are just dealing with this individually on their own. Another thing that states are doing individually it hasn't happened on the federal level yet, but is providing more Medicaid funding first, first of all, for longer, right? Um, because a lot of women who have negative outcomes have them postpartum after you've left the hospital and suddenly you're fine because a lot of people don't realize after you had a baby, you don't see your doctor for like Two months. Hmm. And then you don't see them again. <laughs> like, then you don't go regularly after you've had this, like, big thing happen to your body.
1: And that if the the zone, the, the, the time frame of risk after giving birth is those kind of few weeks after, the fact that you're not in close communication with your doctor right. can be a problem. And
2: it's longer than first, the first few weeks. That's the thing. That's why they're trying to expand Medicaid to cover you for the first year after you've had a baby. Mm-hmm. And also expanding coverage for doulas. New York is, I think, pushing a couple of bills right now that expand coverage for doulas who can positively affect birth outcomes, right? Because you have someone who has followed you. When you go see your OB, your, your OB has several patients, right? Your doula is little, like your birth concierge. She's with you from the time you have like engaged her services, perhaps at like three to four months until that baby comes. She knows you. She knows your body. She can go to doctor's appointments with you. You can call, text her, call her if something doesn't feel right. You know, my doula, my, my two-year-old elbowed me really hard in the stomach a couple uh, months ago. And it freaked me out, uh, even though I knew the baby was fine. I knew that that wasn't going to be something my doctor was going to answer me back right mm-hmm. away. Text my doula, she texted me back two minutes later. And she was mm-hmm. like, here's what you should do, right? Um, and then she'll be with you through your birth.
1: How did it feel for you kind of working through the fact that at least at the beginning it sounded like you thought that C section or that you know the fact that you would have to get a C section would be a sense of failure yes. and and what was it like working through that and finding the people who could tell you that it's not a failure it's just one of many ways in which people have
2: beautiful healthy babies i it was it was a, a process <laughs> it was definitely a process um and it was just like a, a discovery of knowing that there are, there were women out there that had all of this knowledge for me. I just needed to ask and I needed to find them basically. And if I hadn't opened my mouth to ask, if we weren't in the same place with each other for me to be able to ask these things, that I would just be stewing in my own crazy juices and going nuts about it, you know? And that's, one, the power of social media, but then also the power of physical space and being around women who can give you this sort of knowledge. And I think that that's what people are creating now with these millennial mom organizations like District Motherhood. I'm also in this organization called Mocha Moms. And just a place where not only can we all email each other and DM each other, but we can like sit and meet, you know, and talk about this kind of thing. We were all doing it in our 20s when we were sitting and meeting and talking about boys. And now it's like, (laughs) let's talk about our bodies. You know, Mm -hmm. let's talk about our mental health. Let's talk about all the things that are going to help us just live our lives. And I think that that, finding that sort of community was the biggest gift throughout this.
1: Helena, thank you so much. Thank you. Helena Andrews-Dyer is a reporter for The Post. Because of her placenta previa, She'll undergo her C-section in a few days.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
1: And now one more thing. A story about digital life after death from tech and business reporter Peter Hawley.
4: James Flajos has a company that might alter the way we interact with dead people in the near
5: future. My name is James Flajos. I'm the founder of Hereafter,
4: a company that creates legacy avatars for people. James has created a company that will allow people to interact with the dead when they're gone It's a series of very long, lengthy interviews that are uploaded and then put into a software program that will allow people to interact with him as if he's there. And his first subject, his prototype, is a guy named Andrew Kaplan.
1: Uh, Hi, my name is Andrew Kaplan. I'm 78 years old. I live in Rancho Mirage, California.
4: It would essentially be like having a conversation with Andrew in real life, except the answers are somewhat scripted.
5: The impetus to create a company that would preserve people's legacies came from something that happened in my own life, which was in 2016, my father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. It was a very sudden diagnosis, and it left me and the family scrambling for what we could do to sort of capture my dad's memory basically while we still could before he was
4: gone. And before he passed away, he decided that he wanted to be able to interact with him when he was gone. So he created a dad bot, which is essentially a computer program or computer software program that interacts with him the way his father did based on recordings that allow you
5: or a loved one to first record their story. Uh, you know, They're from their childhood through going through school, falling in love, getting a career, all the things that happen to us in life. And then to have that story. Presented via chatbots, so something you could talk to through something like Amazon Alexa, where the user could then later, and maybe even after you've passed away, ask questions about your life and hear the answers.
4: So, in the past, we've memorialized people who have died by posting photos on Facebook or sharing old movies. And this is a totally different way of thinking about how we interact with people who are gone you can actually have a conversation with a dead person. But there's a lot of questions about what happens when you upload somebody into a virtual bot. So I I talked to mental health professionals about this technology and some of the the vulnerabilities it might produce. And one thing they talked about was how vulnerable people are in grief and not being entirely sure how somebody's going to respond to being able to access their dead partner or their their dead child in a virtual setting. Is that going to prolong the grief? Is that going to complicate it? Or is it going to be therapeutic? These are questions that still haven't been answered.
1: Peter Hawley is a tech and business reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Sprenowski, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I am Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.